welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan Lee Davies, and here is my co-host, Gavia Baker-Whitelaw. Hello! So this week, as a holiday treat, we watched George Cukor's beloved classic, The Philadelphia Story, starring Katherine Hepburn as a Philadelphia socialite Tracy Lord, Cary Grant as her ex-husband C.K. Dexter Haven, and Jimmy Stewart and Ruth Hussey as a tabloid journalist and photographer who go undercover as friends of the Lord family to get the inside scoop of Tracy's wedding to a new man. So this is not a Christmas movie, but um, I wanted to do a sort of fun classic for the week of Christmas. And uh, this is one of my favorite movies, and I think it's just like a fun watch. So It's uh, so fun. <laughs> yeah. I have seen this movie approximately a thousand times, uh, but I did rewatch it last night, so I'm feeling very, you know, refreshed on the Philadelphia story. I saw this for the first time when I was doing my master's, and... Uh, Loved it so much, I watched it again the next day. So (laughs) (laughs) it was what kicked off my, uh, like, madness slash passion for romantic comedies in the 1930s and 40s, in fact, was this movie, um, which is now one of my, like, favorite things in the world slash movies. And uh, was has a long history in my family. It was one of my grandmother's favorite films. My grandfather may have seen it on Broadway, uh, which we'll get into, but... um, it's just a very special movie for me, so I'm excited to get to talk about it. And um, it is kind of a rare bird, it, even in this period, in terms of the kind of the stuff that it's doing with all of the big famous actors, which we will get into. When did you first see this film? Do you remember? I mean, it was probably about five years ago, maybe. I mean, I was an adult. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that's really special about this movie is that it's definitely a film for adults in an interesting way, which we'll talk about more when we get into sort of the plot but um it, i'm sure we have some teenagers listening to this and i would certainly not discourage them from watching this film if they're interested in old movies but um it's not a, like the first film i would recommend to younger people who are interested in old films um it's like designed for grown-ups and their grown-up problems in a way that i think is really interesting and kind of beautiful but before we get into the plot and the content of this movie um we'll give a little bit of background about how it came to be. As I mentioned, it started out as a play. It ran on Broadway for a year from March uh, of 1939 to the following year in March. And it was a massive, massive hit. And it had been written for Catherine Hepburn specifically by Philip Barry, who was a playwright whom she knew because she had been in the stage and film version of his play Holiday. I discovered you know, looking this up this afternoon, that um, she was the understudy in the, the original cast of Holiday in 1928, and then went on to play like the role that she had understudied in the film version in 1938, which is pretty wild, um, which was also directed by George Cukor, who directed The Philadelphia Story. And she had had a run in the late 30s of movies that made no money at the box office. And there was this uh, editorial, and I believe The Hollywood Reporter, that labeled uh, a number of stars box office poison. And then that label followed them around for a while and so she yeah i had no idea this was like where the term was coined and it's especially bonkers in the context of it being Catherine hepburn yes (laughs) and also the fact that um one of those movies that wound up having her labeled as box office poison was a movie that we now think of as iconic which is bringing up baby which also we would both highly recommend it's like the idea that that movie was a flop is just like why how yes (laughs) so that and holiday both of which star Grant and Hepburn both came out in 1938 and 
Holiday is a little bit less known than some of the other sort of like big screwballs. Yeah, I've not seen that one. I mean, one day we will do an episode on Holiday and bringing up Baby, but Holiday is my personal favorite romantic comedy of that period slash ever. It's totally unbelievable. It's extraordinary. But it it also made no money. So she was kind of in dire straits and wound up, I'm not sure, I mean, this is obviously available information, but I'm not sure whether she specifically commissioned the play from Barry or whether he just wrote it with her in mind. And then she was like, yes, I am going to like put all of my capital behind this capital in the abstract sense. But she really was the force behind it, both um, in terms of the play on Broadway and then also the movie, like she produced the film and she was the one who picked Kukor to direct the movie that they'd been, she'd started many movies with him before. And she also picked the screenwriter, Donald Ogden Stewart, who had written the adaptation of Holiday, among other movies. And um, yeah, it's kind of wild because like she got, she got one of these deals where like she, she got the film rights, not because she had enough money to buy them because she like got Howard Hughes to buy her the film rights. <laughs> and then she sold the film rights to the studio, but like her deal included she had to have basically full creative control over the creative team, which is just wild. And uh, and she knew who to pick. And Kukor was obviously an icon, you know, of this period. Yes, they were very close friends and remained close until the end of their lives or his life. He died before she did. And it's interesting because now I think this is kind of seen as a thing that actresses in particular will often do with projects because it's so hard for actresses in Hollywood to wind up in good projects because... They're scarce anyway, and particularly if you're a woman, it's yeah. just I mean, very it's what hard. Margot Robbie is now doing. Yes, but at this time, this just, like, did not happen. This was not a thing that women or actors of any gender did. And um, she, because of the way the studio system functioned, like, this wasn't a thing. And she obviously was just like, no, no. <laughs> like, I'm doing this. I've decided. And her original vision for the cast was that she wanted Clark Gable to play the Cary Grant role and Spencer Tracy to play the Jimmy Stewart role. I'm not sure if she and Spencer Tracy were an item by this point. I don't think they were, but I might have the dates wrong. Obviously, that'll be on Wikipedia. Um, but uh, those two casting you know, desires just didn't work out. And so they wound up going to Grant and Stewart, who are absolutely better choices for these parts. So... That's good. Yeah, like Clark Gable isn't fun enough. Have you ever seen it happen one night? No. Because that's his big romantic comedy, like, entry. I mean, he was in a number of them, but that's the most famous one. And he's very funny in that, but he's, um, there's always something about him that's slightly dangerous. Like, he just has a quality that you're always a little bit, like... yeah. Which can be really interesting and appealing. And he's actually, I rewatched Gone with the Wind earlier this year for a project. And um, he's hes very funny in that also. But obviously, all, like he's a scumbag in that movie. That's the whole point of that character. So I think he probably could have done it, but it would have been a very different dynamic. And um, what winds up happening with that, the whole plot would not have been as appealing <laughs> if he had been in that role. And then the I, Spencer Tracy would have been fine. In the Jimmy Stewart role, he's obviously a great actor, but, like, Jimmy Stewart's kind of, like, skinny, naive, charming young boyness. Like, Spencer Tracy yes. is a different <laughs> kind of vibe. Um, I don't feel like... I can't remember if I've even seen any of Spencer Tracy's big movies. I've only seen him in a couple of the ones he did with Hepburn. After this point, she basically... 
in terms of the romantic comedy movies, she almost exclusively makes them with Tracy. This is the fourth movie she makes with Grant, and they don't make any more after this point. They got along great. I don't think there was any problem. It was just that she was in this relationship with Spencer Tracy, and they wanted to make movies together. And they had great chemistry, but um, I've only seen a couple of the films they did together, but my understanding is that most of them are kind of this vibe of like, she's like a powerful woman who has to get put in her place. The first film they did together, I think, is Woman of the Year, which is 42, which I have seen. And the end of that film is so disgustingly anti-feminist. It's like actually upsetting to me to think about. Um, the one they do with Kukor later in the decade is called Adam's Rib, which has a little bit of that vibe, but is much more kind of complicated and interesting. But um, this movie is interesting as a fulcrum point because it has a little bit of that dynamic, which we'll talk about, but it's not as intensely that way. And like the other movies she makes with Grant, she's more of the one in control of the situation. Like bringing up Baby, he's just like running around like, what the fuck is happening to me? And she's the sort of madcap woman in, in charge of story but uh you know she wanted to make movies with Spencer Tracy so it is what it is so Kukor and Donna Lodgen Stewart the um screenwriter are both, are both pretty interesting figures in different ways Kukor I think is one of the sort of great un- undersung directors in American cinema obviously there are many people who know and love his work it's not like he's this completely unknown figure but if you look at the list of movies he made, it's compl- it's insane. Like, he did the 1933 Little Women with Katherine Hepburn. He did Holiday. He did The Philadelphia Story. He did Gaslight. He did Born Yesterday. He did My Fair Lady. He did The A Star is Born with Judy Garland. <laughs> like, and I'm forgetting some stuff. Like, he just made so many of the kind of most iconic movies of that couple decades span. But he adapted a lot of plays for the screen, and his visual approach to um, directing was very much to kind of not make the camera movements the point of the movie. Like, it was all about the actors, and they're, they're very talky movies for the most point, because they're adapted from plays in many cases. And so I think a lot of those movies are still really beloved, but he doesn't often get talked about as, like, one of the great directors, which I think he should be. I love, I love a lot of his movies a lot. And then Donald Ogden Stewart actually came up a lot in the biography of Herman Mankiewicz that I read for our Mank episode because... Well, this movie was produced by Joseph L. Mankiewicz, yes. his brother. So <laughs> this Stewart, not Jimmy Stewart, um, was a member of the Algonquin Roundtable, which was like the social club in New York that Herman Mankiewicz was part of. Um, and he was started out as a playwright, I believe. And was really involved in um, the Screenwriters Guild and the Communist Party in Hollywood. And he kind of, like, his relationship with Herman Mankiewicz ended because of their political differences. And he was, like, a very prominent member of the Communist Party in Hollywood in this whole period. And he was actually blacklisted in 1950 and then moved to England because he couldn't get any work. He signed a pledge in 1968 refusing to pay taxes to the U.S. government to protest the war in Vietnam. So, like, throughout his life was obviously very engaged with political causes, which makes this movie kind of interesting because there's a way to read it that's like, you should just be nice to rich people. (laughs) Um, But I think in the context of who wrote it and the Hollywood context of this time, I think what he's kind of trying to convey is to, like, not consider class identification 
an important thing. Basically, the setup of this film is that Jimmy Stewart and uh, Ruth Hussey, who work for this tabloid, but have, like, grand artistic goals, but they're making money working for this tabloid, which they don't really like, wind up going undercover to cover this wedding. Yeah, they're doing, like, a society report on this. It's just, like, old money, rich wedding yes. between Catherine Hepburn, who has already been married once, <laughs> and she divorced her ex-husband, who is, of course, C.K. Dexter Haven with his amazing name, played by Cary Grant, and she is planning to marry into like a more new money kind of guy. So there's like... I was just going to say, I don't think he's even new money. I th- He works for her dad's... I think he he's like, he met they met through her dad and he's like in politics. So he's like a man of the people. Like full on. He's not even new money. He's just a common. <laughs> like, I mean, doesn't he like own a mine? I think he works in... Like he's works for her dad's company. Like I think... Okay. I don't think he owns them. Like, I, I watched this last night and I'm pretty sure he's not like an owner of a mine. It's like he wants to go into politics and he works for her dad in some capacity, I think. And... Jimmy Stewart initially is like, like he wants to like the new guy because he's salt of the earth. And then it turns out the new guy is an asshole. So so it like this, you know, disillusions him. But the movie has a lot of fun, both like kind of poking fun at both sides of the class equation. I mean, and the main character was based on this real woman. I mean, obviously they're all kind of types because it's very waspy and it's all about this sort of particular like wealthy like American snobbery but there was this socialite called Helen Hope Montgomery Scott because one must always have as as many names as possible it's like if you're a socialite you either have one name or you have like eight and she was like basically this type of person like known for her parties and philanthropy and there's loads of photos of her you can find if you google her but this is the vibe and like when you meet Catherine Hepburn as Tracy Lord in this film she's just so vivacious <laughs> vivacious and judgmental and wearing a lot of beautiful floor length dresses well she only wears the beautiful floor length dress at the party later when you meet her initially she's wearing like pants yeah she's wearing her riding she's wearing her trousers as Catherine Hepburn so often did yes and she Wears like a, you know, a robe to like go swimming or something. But I think the vibe is definitely that she's kind of like casual in her normal She's outdoorsy. Life. Yes. Because the setup of these people going undercover to cover this wedding um, turns out to be <laughs> that Cary Grant has found out that this tabloid magazine is going to run an item on the dad, on Catherine Hepburn's dad, who is in New York, having a not affair with a dancer because it's the Hayes Code period, so he can't actually be having an affair with a dancer, but, like, clearly he's having an affair with a dancer. It's all a bit awkward from a story perspective because they can't, they have to go through, like, great lengths to be like, but nothing is happening, and you're like, But basically, Cary Grant is tacitly doing a favour to the family by making sure this scandal gets covered up by giving the tabloid a different story, which is a tale as old as time. So Yes. And the family, he, he sort of spills the beans to the family that this is happening. So they decide not to tell the journalists that they know this and instead to put on a show for them. And there's a scene pretty near the beginning of the movie where um, 
Catherine Hepburn and her younger sister Dinah, who's like 12-ish, I would say. An amazing, amazing hilarious, hilarious child performance child. <laughs> by uh, an actress named Virginia Weedler, who this is definitely the thing she's best known for. She died pretty young, I think. Um, but uh, she's incredible in this movie. It's and a great role because it's like there's this is also a period where there's like a glut of sort of precocious child roles in classic Hollywood. And this is kind of a precocious child role, but she's also like really funny and kind of intentionally annoying. So it's delightful. <laughs> yes, there were lots of precocious children in old Hollywood, but this feels like definitely the prototype of the kind of precocious child that you will see in like modern romantic comedies, right? Like this, yeah. this specific role definitely feels- About a boy. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Because the other, like the other kind of children you see in old Hollywood often, like they're all kind of cardboard cutouts and it's just that the children didn't know how to act. Which is fine. I mean, they were children and they were just talking like it was the 1940s. And this kid is just a little menace in a very, very funny way. And uh, anyway, in this scene, they all decide to act like the most stereotypical, like awful rich people imaginable. And, you know, put on fancy sort of like feminine clothes and act in this sort of like hoity-toity way. But it's not the way they actually behave. And so it's feeding into this idea that Jimmy Stewart has that, like, all rich people are just callous monsters. And the bits of Jimmy Stewart and Ruth Hussey making fun of their, like, fancy house are also very funny, right? Like, you understand their point of view, too. But the movie does a really good job of kind of, like, skewering them both a little bit because it's so obvious that this is a put-on charade like no one behaves as cartoonishly as these people do and they're both just like wow I guess that really <laughs> I guess that really is what they're like and there's loads of fun sort of physical comedy in this as well because like obviously Jimmy Stewart is an amazing physical com- physical comedian and Catherine Hepburn have been playing this character on stage already and they just have loads of fun with like props and sort of little reactions to each other in this section which is just delightful I mean the dialogue in general on the film too is astounding yeah The serious stuff is really good, but also there are a number of one-liners that are, remain hilarious, you know, 80 years later. There was, the one that made me really burst out laughing last night was um, around this, this moment in the film, Stuart asks Grant what, you know, Tracy slash Catherine's, like, main quality is or something, and he's wearing his hat in the, like, parlor one of the many parlors of this house and Cara Grant just looks at him and says she has a terror of men who wear hats their hats inside like it's written well on like my paraphrase just there but they just kind of look at each other and the way that it's delivered and the way that it's written is just screamingly funny like I don't know why it just is hilarious and you imagine (laughs) watching it in a packed theater in 1940 and everyone just like losing their minds and I feel like there's been a shift kind of back to written comedy away from improvised comedy which really dominated the 2000s and like obviously some improvised stuff can be really funny and great and there is in fact an improvised moment in this movie that we'll mention later that is completely hilarious but when you have someone who's really funny who's just writing really good jokes it's it's very good (laughs) yep couple it with a top tier cast (laughs) well one of the things about this movie that's so fascinating which many people have commented on is the way that it kind of, like, 
reflects and comments on the like star personas of the people who are starring in it. And I think, you know, there's still something to me watching it for the nth time that's kind of magical about seeing Hepburn and Grant and Stewart in the same movie together. Yeah. You know, I think like actresses today often complain about how infrequently they get to make movies with other sort of actresses of their caliber because it's just really uncommon for there to be multiple parts for women in the same movie. But I was thinking about that watching this and I was like, that's obviously true and a problem, but for like mega, mega stars, they normally don't act together in movies. Well, right? it's also like the thing, I think we've talked about this before, but like the thing about like leading leading men <laughs> is that a lot of the time, like the movies, there will be a movie which has like several extremely famous men in it, but like not of the same generation. Yes. And a lot of those actors who are like A-list or aspiring to be A-list don't want to be in another movie with another man of their tier because they don't want to be overshadowed. And there's actually loads of sort of Hollywood stories and rumours about famous actors making sure that they do not have someone else homing in on their screen time, you know? And like one of the famous ones would obviously be like Alan Rickman, who was such a scene stealer in like, it was either Robin Hood or Die Hard that it basically scuppered his career in Hollywood. Like not that he was blacklisted, but like he was such a scene stealer that other actors like didn't want to be acting opposite him. And because he wasn't a leading man, he was like more of a secondary character or a villain. It was like, well, <laughs> there's nothing we can do about this if he's going to act other people off the screen. And a lot of the time it is literally just like ego. Yeah. And I feel like this is less of a thing now because the concept of movie stardom is so, it's just atrophied. Yeah. And also you have like stuff like the Avengers where there's like 15 top tier actors yes. and they're doing fuck all in terms of performance. Right. They're know? like in the movie for five minutes and they're like acting in front of a green screen and no one is in the same room anyway. And so it's just like, whatever. But if you go back to 1940, like obviously you have top male and female actors in movies together all the time because the romantic comedy is such a huge genre for that period. But right. I like, I'm sure there are some like adventure movies I'm not thinking of where you have a couple like really big men in a movie together but it is extremely rare to get a movie like this with Grant and Stewart together I mean they certainly didn't make another film together and like Humphrey Bogart wasn't making a bunch of movies with like the Cary Grants and Jimmy Stewart's of the world right like that was not happening and you could pick out like you know Clark Gable was not doing that either like they it just didn't happen and um they are both so good in this movie, as is she, obviously. And Ruth Hussey is fantastic as well in a smaller role. I mean, everyone who plays any part in this movie is great. All the little supporting roles are fantastic, too. But the main four are really wonderful. You just feel like you're watching something really special, getting to see those two men in a movie together where they both have really meaty parts. Yeah. And like you said they're all playing to type, which is often the way to get a really great performance because it's very much like playing into Catherine Hepburn's public image because obviously her whole thing, as we have discussed, is like she was often like slightly boyish, known for playing a lot of headstrong, powerful women. And because of the period, this also meant that in the final wheel, you'd have a, you know, a learning moment where it turns out that what she should actually do is like soften herself. But we know the real Hepburn. <laughs> um, and also just sort of screwball rom-coms where she is the, the true protagonist and also very like waspy 
roles very waspy vibe and the fact that she's like showing up here riding a horse at the beginning is like yes of course and then obviously like the two male leads it's definitely their vibe because like Cary Grant is a good sleazebag like he plays some buffoons but he also plays like sexy slightly sleazy men who are so charming to get away with it and Jamie Stewart is like oh I'm just galumping around me you know so (laughs) I don't know that Grant plays that many I mean there's like a little, there's like a little, you know, taste, a little sprinkle. I, I mean, think. there's definitely a sprinkle of sleaze in this, but I don't know that sleaze is the word. Jackassery. I mean, his girl Friday, again. That, that, that's <laughs> what I was thinking of, but like, that is very specific to that movie. And I think it's actually pretty different from what he's doing here. I mean, he made a movie with Alfred Hitchcock called Suspicion, which he's actually playing like a, a bad man around this time also which is a different thing altogether because he's not supposed to be like they don't end up together at the end of that movie because he's bad but I think to me the sort of star thing in this is more about like the suaveness of him yeah which I think people associate with him so much and I think even were associating with him at the time which originates in The Awful Truth in 1937, in which he, he was also playing a little bit. That's the mo- that's actually the most sleazy one of all of them, which is a comedy of remarriage with Irene Dunn. Um, I think it's streaming on Criterion right now. It's so wonderful. In which, like, she figures out that he's had an affair at the beginning of the movie, although they can't explicitly say that because it's 1937, but, like, he's definitely been cheating on her. And so they get divorced, and then the whole movie is them, like, trying to get married again sort of one of them chases the other and the other one chases the other but he's very charming and wears a great suit in that movie and like that's the sort of birth of the Cary Grant that we think of as Cary Grant but bringing up baby is the next year and he's totally not that person at all in bringing up baby like he's well, a I mean the, I think that his specific persona which is that he can he can exist between these two poles of like suaveness and goofiness and he doesn't take himself seriously either in public or in his own films, is the reason why a lot of people kind of characterise George Clooney as a rare modern example of a classic Hollywood star. And it's not so much that he is really like a classic Hollywood star in terms of his public persona, because he's not really. Like, you don't get like a ton of time talking about like magazine spreads of his mansion. But his vibe is very is very Cary Grantish because he's, you know, the goofy at suave thing. Well, he also looks like him. Yeah, Which and he was, also looks like that's a he huge like part of that. <laughs> like he looks bizarrely like him. But well, like what's interesting about Grant is that I think he actually had a lot of range. But the sort of I- idea of him, which I totally have in my head too, of like the suave, charming guy, it was just so powerful that like it just was fixed in everyone's head so fast. And I think he's playing on that a lot in this movie by kind of tamping it down without erasing it like he's pretty restrained in this film he doesn't actually do that much and the like charisma factor it's it's there in a big way but he's he's being pretty recessive if you compare this to his girl friday where he's like so external in everything that he's doing in this movie he's really restrained he was really mad he didn't get nominated for an oscar (laughs) for this film which is unfortunate because it would be amazing to see like an Oscar reel of someone just saying hello, friends and enemies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the most iconic line. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart won the Oscar for this, which was a big scandal because um, Henry Fonda was nominated the same year for Grapes of Wrath. 
and they were best friends. And it was generally thought that Stuart won because he hadn't won the year before. Mr. Smith goes to Washington and uh, Stuart and everybody else <laughs> thought that Henry Fonda should have won. And it was this like torment to him forever because he felt guilty about it. And Henry Fonda is absolutely incredible in The Graves of Wrath. But um, I think this is Jimmy Stewart's best performance. So I don't really feel like there was a travesty that occurred. Cary Grant is my favorite actor, you know, living or dead. And I think he's great in this movie. But I think that one of the sort of unique and amazing things about this film is that you genuinely, I certainly, when I first watched it, genuinely did not know what was going to happen at the end. And that is because they persuasively offer two men who she could wind up marrying. And the fact that I, who love Cary Grant so much, was like, Jimmy Stewart does seem pretty charming. <laughs> it's like a testament to that performance and the writing, of course. But I think we often sort of devalue comedy performance. I mean, that's that's not an opinion. That's definitely a fact. Like, Yes, I mean, yes. <laughs> but he is wild in this movie. He is so good. For the entire second half, practically, he's drunk. And I've never seen a better drunk man. Just sublime. I mean, in our planning document for this episode, Morgan has put just a whole section about the booze content in this film, which I think is completely correct. And I think we should go into that because this is like, I mean, this is like a drunk party movie. And it's a really amazing, it's a really amazing example because it's like very late 30s. So it's like, oh, we're, we're all chic and like nostalgic, but also wasted. Um, and it has various different depictions of alcohol enjoyment and indeed alcohol abuse beginning with a very kind of like perhaps almost inappropriately comical treatment of the fact that Catherine Hepburn broke up part of the reason why she broke up with her first husband uh Cary Grant is because he was a boozer so yes watching this movie right after having watched Kenneth Lonergan's Margaret for last week's episode was really interesting to me because we were discussing while talking about that movie, the ways in which it's kind of a moral problem movie in like pretty explicit terms, right? Like the main character of that movie is trying to figure out like what to do about this ethical conundrum that she's in about this woman who's died. I mean, it's, there's a lot going on in that movie. And this is a romantic comedy, which is different. <laughs> it's a different yes. kind of thing. <laughs> but I think it's kind of similar in an interesting way, which is that, I think a lot of what's going on in this movie, which you do not often get in romantic comedies, is this sort of, like, subtle consideration of these moral problems that all the characters are dealing with in a way that the movie is extremely resistant to resolving, which I think is pretty interesting and sometimes unsatisfying to the modern viewer. Yeah. I mean, the idea of having multiple nuanced viewpoints from several different lead characters in a rom-com is just unheard of. Because like when, right at the beginning of this, we were kind of talking about how this is very much like a wealthy people movie. And I feel like kind of the, the most recent really big wealthy people movie that came out was Crazy Rich Asians. But the narrative of that is like extremely simple. Like, I mean, I don't mean that in a bad way, but it's like very much falling into modern rom-com tropes. And this is just like, it has a lot more complexity for all of its characters and the choices it ma they make. And it's not kind of all hinging on silly misunderstandings, even though God knows I love a silly misunderstanding. And so did the rom-com writers of the 1930s. 
Yes. Well, I think this is what happens when you have a genre that's actually, like, essential to the art of the time, right? Like, you can find romantic comedies from the 30s, and again, this is 1940, so it's the right at the beginning of the 40s, but you can find romantic comedies from the 30s that are just silly and dumb and, like, you know, stupid. But there are so many of them being made that, by the law of averages, some of them have to be really complicated yeah. And interesting, right? And a lot of them, a lot of these rom-coms were being used to, kind of, for the public to really examine questions about gender and about class. Yes. Whereas this film isn't, like, you know, breaking wild new ground. But <laughs> yeah, this is not, like, this is not, like, a Karl Marx kind of situation here. <laughs> well, it's the kind of thing where, like, the studios were not going to allow any, like, wild leftist propaganda in their movies and so the communist screenwriters at the time had to sort of content themselves with slipping in these like subtle little maybe we're not all that different right like that's about the maximum that was gonna get through (laughs) i mean holiday incidentally is way more explicitly capitalism is bad and no one went to see it so here we are a couple years later with this movie But um, the alcohol stuff, I think, is really interesting because Grant's character, they talk a lot about him being an alcoholic. There's also, like, the the incident they show right at the beginning is him kind of pushing her over into the doorframe. And, like, obviously it's violent, but it's not particularly violent in the way that it's acted out in the movie. Like, it's kind of slapsticky. And Hepburn apparently enjoyed doing it so much that she made him do it, like, many, many times over, because there was just, like, a pad on the floor or something that she was going to, like, bounce off of, and it was very fun. But there, they reference him, like, slugging her or something. I can't remember the exact word, but it's some euphemism for hit. And obviously this was part of the issue, although they don't ever make explicit, like, what exactly was going on. But her little sister Dinah is, like, thrilled at the idea of getting to see him slug her. Again, she's, like, really excited by this prospect, which you're like, mm. But A, if you watch movies from this period, the way they talk about domestic violence is different from now. Like, it'll be used as a joke in a way that to us now feels distasteful and you just have to be I like, mean, well... I mean, just the other day, I was reading out loud to a friend, like, a 1940s memoir that was very lighthearted and there were, like, multiple extremely lighthearted references to people being beaten by their husbands and I was like... Whoa, okay. (laughs) Yeah, in The Thin Man, there's a moment where William Powell literally, like, like, hits Myrna Loy in the face to, like, get her out of the way of, like, a bullet or something. And you're like, that could have been affected so many ways other than that. And it's clearly not that this man is, like, beating his wife. It's just that, like, that was the joke. Was that, like, oh, well, he'll just punch her in the face. And you're like, why? It Happened One Night is the one that has the most, there's a lot of kind of, allusions to that that I find quite gross now. I don't love that movie particularly. What I think is interesting about this film is that it's clear that Tracy, Catherine Hepburn's character, was genuinely bothered by her husband's behavior, right? Like, and they're they're both kind of making a joke out of it, but also acknowledging that this was troublesome to her, while also acknowledging that she was not very helpful to him at all. And there's this whole monologue that he gives, which is honestly a little bit much, where he tells her how bad a wife she was. (laughs) And part of the whole, like, not even subtext about Tracy 
is that she does not have sex and just like is this like cold sort of like restrained woman i mean you can interpret it different ways but it's pretty clear that that's part of what's going on and that she gets really drunk in the second half of the movie and that like for her alcohol and getting drunk means that she can kind of loosen up and become more sexually kind of like liberated whereas for grant he doesn't drink anymore by the time this movie starts because he can't like if he starts drinking he's a mess and i think that all of this stuff like there would be a way to depict all of this that would be very kind of black and white morally and the movie just refuses to do any of that right yeah and the fact that they don't go into detail to do with the breakup and the first marriage really just works so well because you you get enough from their vibe because the kind of imprecise nature of the dialogue and their performances and their just their chemistry tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, like they still have a lot of chemistry, but there's something that's sort of like, there is some tension there. It's very easy to accept both why she broke up with him and also kind of why you kind of ship them again. You're still kind of wanting to get together, which is a big ask. <laughs> yes. But there are other examples in the movie of these cases of something that is both bad but kind of turned into a little bit of a joke or that has to kind of be reconciled so like tracy has an uncle uncle willie who likes to pinch women in the bums which like he does this to um jimmy stewart's pal liz played by ruth hussey and it's both a joke in the movie but also clearly the movie does understand that like he's gross Right? So it do, it kind of is like balancing both things. The one thing that I really do not like in this film, like aggressively find bad, is that she's estranged from her father, sort of briefly estranged from her father, because he's having this affair with, <laughs> affair in quotes, with this dancer in New York. And he winds up coming back for the wedding and again kind of lectures her about the fact that you know, she's really cold and doesn't understand how to live. She kind of echoes this lecture Cary Grant gives her. And by the end of the movie, like, she's just like, yeah, dad, you're totally right about everything. That's one of those things where, like, you see it in a mid-20th century movie and I'm just like, I've just decided not to believe this happened. Because it's just like, it just doesn't even make sense in the context of the film. Like, in the context of her characterization, I just, like, don't grasp that she would... But it is consistent with... Grant and the dad both give these lectures. Grant is... And it's very Taming of the Shoe. Yes. Taming of the Shrew. And Grant has a kind of paternalistic role in this movie because he gives this lecture and because he's kind of directing the action in a way. And the idea of, like, this affair that the dad has supposedly not had because of the Hayes Code not ultimately being a big deal is very consistent with the movie's philosophy about moral problems, which is that you have to kind of just like be like, eh, well, <laughs> it's a kind of all right. It's that the execution of how all of that works, I find kind of retrograde. And there is a little hint of like retrograde gender stuff in this movie with Tracy which depending on how I'm feeling can sometimes kind of rub me the wrong way, which is that like the entire film is about her learning to be a real human being, as they say in the movie, but it's prompted by these men kind of lecturing her, 
which is a trope you see in a lot of these films from the 1930s. Like they're all about, usually it's the woman who has to kind of like figure out how to be a woman because of all the gender stuff going on at the time in the country. But there's often a man who kind of like gives a lecture to the woman. Like that definitely happens and it happens one night. Again, not one of my favorites. And then in the 40s, it gets way worse because of, I think that all the war is sort of connected with that. But um, the Tracy movies, for sure, with Hepburn sort of line up with that, which is too bad because the ones, I, as I said, the ones she makes with Grant before this don't really have that dynamic. It's way more equitable, I think. But there is this desire in the culture, I think, for these women who are kind of becoming more powerful to still have some part of them gets to be controlled by the man, right? But the movie balances that out a bit with the Jimmy Stewart character, who is not like that at all. <laughs> and who just thinks that Tracy's great. He, which he tells her at length while very hammered, very drunk. <laughs> After going to visit Cary Grant while very drunk in, I think the best scene uh, basically ever captured on cinema. It makes me laugh so hard every time. He goes to talk to him, and there's a moment where he starts hiccuping, and he did not tell Cary Grant that he was going to start hiccuping in this scene. And if you watch closely, Cary Grant breaks and starts, oh like, smiling God. to himself, and oh then says, God. excuse me? <laughs> and for the rest of that scene, until they get up and start, like, walking around and move on to sort of the next part of the scene, Cary Grant just keeps smiling to himself in a way that is, like, not how he normally... Oh, I have to look up for that next time I watch it this is... movie. That is delightful. Oh my god, <laughs> it is so fucking funny. And it is the most persuasive, like, acted hiccups I've basically ever seen. Like, you completely believe this guy is just like... Well, I guess that's why he got the Oscar, Morgan. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I too would have been like, great hiccuping. Like, check the box. <laughs> Shall we discuss how this movie resolves? Yeah. Because I've been kind of trying, I mean, I think probably people can figure it out from the way we've been discussing it, but I was kind of trying to avoid explicitly saying, because as I said, when I first watched this, I definitely didn't know until pretty near the end, if not the very end, what winds up happening. And there's, there are certain things about the movie that are kind of interesting that you can only really talk about by referring to the end, which is that she winds up marrying Cary Grant instead of her shitty fiance obviously. Yes, because by Hollywood law, you're allowed to get divorced, but only if you remarry the original guy. (laughs) (laughs) Jimmy Stewart does propose to her at the last minute, and his poor female friend, who he has a sort of romance going on with, is just like, how is this happening? Like, Yeah, it's just like, I mean, sometimes one meets Catherine Hepburn and one cannot help but propose. Yes. (laughs) Um, But she's like, no, no. Um, And she winds up marrying Cary Grant instead. But the whole drama of the last half hour of the movie is that the fiancé, whose name is George, I don't think we've mentioned his name once this entire (laughs) time. Yeah, there's a fiancé in this movie. (laughs) He sucks. He sees her and Jimmy Stewart coming back from the pool where they've gone on a late night swim after their drunken revelry. And he assumes assumes the worst. Um, And Cary Grant is also there and just thinks the whole thing is a bit funny. And... The next morning, everyone is extremely hungover. And then they have this sort of conference on the porch. And um, 
I think it's a bit ironic that for a movie that's so concerned with these sort of moral gray areas that it ultimately comes down to like, did she sleep with him or not? But, you know, the Hays Code. So what it is what it is. But they kind of wriggle around it a little bit by making the problem not whether or not this happened really. It's more about George's like freak out about the potential of it happening because she can't remember anything from the night before. And so she's like, <gasps> have I? And as ever, it comes down to a question of trust. Yes. And Jimmy Stewart has a great line where he's just like, well, you were too drunk. So there's, you know, there are rules about that kind of situation. And I was like, wow, ahead of his time. <laughs> it's like, thanks, Jimmy. <laughs> At last we can put the baby it's cold outside debate to rest. <laughs> <laughs> but this movie that like falls into this category of this sort of subgenre of romantic comedy from this period, which His Girl Friday is also in, obviously, which is the comedy of remarriage. There's a great book called Pursuits of Happiness, um, which I probably referenced when we talked about His Girl Friday, although that was years ago, so I don't remember in detail. This book is by Stanley Cavill, who was a great philosopher at Harvard who wrote about film. And he picked these, and it was seven or eight movies in the 80s when he wrote this book, which he used to sort of like essentially create this genre. It wasn't like a thing that was talked about at the time. And the, what's hilarious about the intro of this book is that he's basically like, I know it's weird to write academic writing about movies, especially romantic comedies, but trust me, it's going to be okay. <laughs> and you're like, wow, time has passed since this point. This book was like very revolutionary. I would highly recommend it. It's obviously an academic book, but it's ex like, it's very, very readable. And this movie is a really interesting sort of installment in the stuff he was writing about because he identifies kind of patterns in these movies that recur again and again. So one of the things that he talks about in a lot of these films that comes up here in a big way is the idea of the central couple having grown up together or having some sort of symbolic idea of like an imaginary childhood together. But in this case, in the movie... The characters keep saying, either about themselves or about Tracy and C.K. Dexter Haven, oh, well, they grew up together. <laughs> they grew up together, they grew up together, as a sort of excuse for the way that they're behaving together. And that is basically, like, the advantage that he has over the Jimmy Stewart character, who is very charming and appealing, but is like, you're just never going to compete. He doesn't have that level of intimacy. No. And I think the Jimmy Stewart character is kind of figured as like a child still while the other characters are kind of moved on to be adults i mean grant is definitely an adult and i think hepburn is kind of on the threshold but like the way that um ruth hussey talks about jimmy stewart is totally like he's a kid he's she's like well he has so much to learn still and like i mean <laughs> you know that's why we're not getting married and uh one of the other things that um, Cavill talks about, which I think is really interesting in this movie, is that in most of these films, the sort of couple who has been married before or has had this kind of symbolic relationship before, in order to sort of reconcile, they have to go to another place to kind of like have a fresh start, which in all of these movies, almost all of them is Connecticut. There's just something magical about Connecticut where like they'll just go off to Connecticut and like something will happen there. I guess to the people in California... Connecticut seemed really appealing. I don't know. And this is the only case that he cites, but I can't think of any other examples, even from the movies that 
that he doesn't use as examples from that time where it's all taking place in like the same place. So like the site of their previous relationship is the site of this film too, which I think very conveniently for a stage play. (laughs) Yes. But it adds to the feeling I think of this being a story about like grown up people who are just dealing with actual complicated grown up problems and obviously it's like a heightened comedy movie but if you watch something like the awful truth which i love i think it's an amazing movie but like the comedy in that is very kind of absurd like there's a scene where irene dunn where she's when she's trying to win cary grant back cary grant is now engaged to another woman who's very wealthy and he's at their fancy house and she dresses up as a lower class bar singer basically who's like his sister And she shows up and she's like pretend hammered and just sings a song in their living room or something. And it's hilarious, but like no one would do this in real life, right? Like it's totally over the top. And this movie has sort of unrealistic things, but it's all kind of on a level of like, you can kind of imagine people behaving in this way. It's more just like this initial setup is implausible. But once you get beyond that point, it all kind of feels pretty psychologically real. And I think that, like, Holiday is that way, too. And I think, like, I have heard that the play version of this is less good than the movie. But um, I think whatever the sort of combination of the creative team was, like, these two, I think, are the most mature of the these kinds of films from that period. I just feel like there's a real sense of respect for actual human emotions, which you don't often yes, get. Correct. You know, so like bringing up Baby too, right? Like that's a masterpiece. I love that movie, but like that's insane. That movie is completely off the walls. And this film is hilarious, but it's much more muted. And the fact that she winds up with Grant at the end, it's not as sort of like exciting as maybe marrying this like young romantic guy, but you feel like it's the right thing to happen which I just really appreciate. It feels realistic to me in a way. Yeah. Do you have any? I've been talking a lot this episode. Do you have anything <laughs> you want to say about the Philadelphia story? I mean, I, I feel like you've really got it covered. Like, you know this movie back to front and I agree with your summation. Wonderful movie. Great vibes. <laughs> yeah. Just like a very comforting watch. And lots of fantastic little lines that you will remember. Like when they're like, hi, she was Yar. (laughs) Well, that's the thing too, right? It's like, we love, we all just love to watch movies about rich people. Like everyone does. It's just, it is what it is. Um, And this movie does a great job of including kind of like very specific waspy stuff like that. Like Cary Grant's character literally designs boats. Like, yeah, that's his it's hobby. It's all quite self-deprecating and charming. <laughs> yes, and it, it both includes the stuff that's kind of, like, escapist and fun while also being like, this is dumb. <laughs> it's dumb to design boats. Like, that's not a real thing. Great film. I don't think we're quite sure what we're going to do next week yet because things are... The release dates are confusing and we'll see. We do have plans to do best of 2020 film lists, which we know people like, but we are going to wait another week. Yes. So that'll be the first week, like the first full week of January. That will be out. We're not doing Wonder Women because Wonder Women isn't out in the UK. Yes. 
So <laughs> I was hoping we could do that, but foiled by fucking Warner Brothers. Very frustrating. But we, I mean, we will find something to discuss, no doubt. We'll tweet about it. We're not quite sure yet. But yeah, in two weeks, we will have our end of the year lists. I have been frantically watching as many 2020 movies as possible for this task. And in fact, this will not be ready for next week because I have too many movies still to watch. And some of them aren't available until next week. So um, I'm not doing that. But also, a lot of the movies I want to see from 2020 are literally not available to me. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sure in our little intro, we will touch upon the distribution nightmare that this year has been internationally. I mean, I've even noticed in the stuff that's available here, there are way fewer foreign films than normal. I, from what I've sort of been cognizant of, and I think it's just like broken down across international lines, it seems like this year. We do discuss a lot of uh, kind of technical Hollywood distribution and like streaming, like HBO Warner Brothers stuff in our latest Patreon exclusive mini-sode, which is a listener Q&A. People sent us in loads of questions. Also lots of questions about like art and films and books and what we've enjoyed and our thoughts and feelings about life, the universe and everything. So if you're interested in hearing us answer some questions from listeners, go over to our Patreon. Yes, that is patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Seams, where I'm discussing costume design on film. Great. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at overinvestedpod. Our Tumblr is overinvestedpodcast, and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.